greetings, namaste, and shalom, everybody out there in dreamland. I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. ongoing civilizations, it's no surprise that China's historical record contains many interesting UFO sightings dating back more than a thousand years, with much of these having been recorded through stories, poetry, theater, and paintings. China also runs the largest UFO organization in the world, boasting a membership of more than 40,000 scientists and engineers. Now, with China moving further into their own modern age, we see contemporary Chinese taking more of an interest in the phenomenon. A fascinating early UFO experience was recorded during the Ming Dynasty. The book from the record, UFO Sightings in the Ancient Chinese History Books, written by Taiwan researcher Kai Chi Cheng, contains a catalog of over 700 UFO incidents recorded in China between 139 BC and 1918 AD. Case number 487 took place during the Ming Dynasty in July 24, 1562. At dusk, an object dropping down from the northwestern sky of Dinghai County, Zhejiang Province, in the beginning, it looked like an oval-shaped measuring container, which had a pointed top, a yellow and white thicker bottom, and a maroon bracket holding it up. As it came down amidst blazing fire, it quickly grew to dough size, then boulder size, then as large as many large jugs put together. The object was glowing extremely bright, which was illuminating the area bright enough that people could see tiny hairs. As it was about to crash, it suddenly jumped up in the air, then went up and down several times, and its shadows danced with it. Eyewitnesses from many provinces reported that they all have seen the same thing. Po, also known as Su Shi, a well-known poet of the Song Dynasty, had a sighting one night in the 1050s as he toured the Jinsha Temple. He watched in the darkness as the Yangtze River lit up. This inspired him to record his experience with a poem. He wrote, At this time the moon debuts on the river. On the second watch the sky darkens accompanied by the moonlight. The middle of the river appears as if engulfed in torch flames. It inflames and shines upon the mountains, startling birds at rest. How disappointed I am. I cannot think what it might be. Not ghost nor human. What sort of thing is it? In 
1892, hundreds of people near Nanjing's Confucius Temple observed a fireball radiating red light in all directions in the sky. The painter Wu Yu Ru was among those witnesses in the crowd. He then painted the scene, naming it Red Flame Take Off. In the painting, he describes the object as an egg-shaped fireball with red light. It floated eastward in the sky for a period of a mill's time and faded into the distance. A prominent name in modern Chinese ufology is Sun Shi Li. He began his career as a government Spanish interpreter and translator, eventually becoming one of Chairman Mao's interpreters. In the late 1970s, Shi Li was working for the magazine China Reconstructs when he received a book by the Spanish author Andreas Faber Kaiser titled Priests or Astronauts. The book was about paleo contact and UFOs and it greatly interested him, so he translated the book from Spanish to Chinese. With this, he became one of China's first UFO experts. He began giving informal lectures at Beijing University and the Beijing Astronomical Association. In the early 1980s, a group of scientists and engineers created the China UFO Research Organization, or CURO, and appointed Shi Li as the organization's president. CURO set stringent membership guidelines, limiting the membership to those that have a degree in science or engineering. Even with those requirements, Kuro is the world's largest UFO organization in the world with over 40,000 members and its own publication, the Journal of UFO Research. A major event that became a turning point for UFO research in China was a mass sighting that took place in 1979 over the capital city of Beijing in mid-afternoon. Two airplane-sized metallic disks descended and made low passes back and forth over the center of the city while tens of thousands of witnesses watched on. The next day, the official newspaper of the Communist Party of China, the People's Daily, published a brief story of the sighting. A number of letters to the editor were received and printed. What followed was a flood of letters from other eyewitnesses of this event, plus accounts of other sightings. Professor Sun Chi Li requested to see the letters from the newspaper. People's Daily responded by giving them the entire collection. Using this information, along with data already collected, Sun Chi Li and his colleagues compiled a full report on Chinese UFO sightings and presented it to the Minister of the Interior. The minister was impressed with their findings and offered to have the Chinese government publish their work. 300,000 copies were printed and sold out within three weeks. Another half a million was published and sold out in a short amount of time. The Minister of the Interior continued to allow the publication to be printed along with the creation of new journals. The printing of these journals demonstrated the public's interest in UFOs, helping launch contemporary UFO research and helped UFOs become a serious topic in China, which it remains to this day. The language and political barriers between China and the West made it difficult for Westerners to gain much insight into Chinese UFO research. However, in the 1980s, UFO researcher and author Wendell Stevens began working with the editor of the Chinese Journal of UFO Research, Paul Dong. Dong was able to obtain the assistance of the Foreign Language Bureau of Peking 
to translate some of their best UFO cases into English. They then allowed Stevens to publish the book in the U.S. The book was titled UFOs Over Modern China and published in 1983. Copies of the book are now hard to come by, but Open Minds inherited Stevens' archives, which fortunately included a few copies. A popular modern-day mass UFO sighting took place on July 7, 2010. Around 8.30 p.m., the crew and passengers of a flight preparing to land at Zhaoshan Airport witnessed a strange light. This sighting prompted officials to close the airport and divert traffic for an hour. Local news reported on the sighting and additional witnesses came forward. The sighting made international headlines and although officials in China said they would release more information after an official investigation, no further information about the shutdown was ever provided. Since the incident in Zhaoshan, other incidents of UFO sightings causing airports to shut down have occurred. China continues to be a hotspot for UFO sightings and a place where scientists take the topic seriously. Planetary astronomer Wang Sichao of the Chinese Academy of Sciences Purple Mountain Observatory predicted in 2010 that credible UFO sightings in China would become more frequent, and they certainly have, with news being more global and the ease at which international UFO stories can go viral via social media, Chinese UFO sightings continue to make worldwide headlines. For your need to know, I'm Alejandro Rojas. ...is Australia's UFO files. The National Archives of Australia holds a number of records relating to UFOs, flying saucers, and other unidentified aerial phenomena. The documents became available in August 2012 under Australia's 30-year rule. This rule orders the release of government documents 30 years after they were created. Most of these records date from the 1950s to the 1970s, when public interest in UFOs was high and many sightings were reported to the Commonwealth authorities. There was no specific government agency designated for collecting and analyzing these sightings, so responsibility fell within the Royal Australian Air Force. Reports were collected from military personnel, pilots, air traffic controllers, meteorologists, and the general public. Some reports were also gathered by other agencies like the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, the Joint Intelligence Organization, the Weapons Research Establishment, and the Department of Transport. Because of their involvement in intelligence, research, or air safety, currently they are no longer taking UFO reports. By the 1970s, UFO sightings had become so commonplace that the Royal Australian Air Force provided a pro forma questionnaire to members of the public. The form had 14 questions for the observer, then they were referred to local civilian UFO investigating agencies. The completed forms and the reports of the unusual aerial sightings can be viewed in the online archives. Part 1 consisted of the report by the observer with basic information. Part 2 of the unit report details any additional information such as aircraft activity, meteorological, research weather balloons, and radar readings. Part 3 was the investigating officer's evaluation. During the peak of interest in UFOs, the RAAF investigated some reports trying to establish whether the sighting could be attributed to low-flying aircraft, weather balloons, 
or other weather-related phenomena. One interesting document is a two-page letter written on July 24, 1960 from a security officer to the Maralinga Range Commander. The letter outlines the comprehensive investigation into reports of UFO sightings in the Woomera prohibited area. In the early 60s, more than 40 top-secret nuclear weapons tests were conducted there under the codename Vixen. The letter mentions a total of six witnesses seeing a light that varied between 2 and 15 seconds. In the letter, one suggestion was that the cause could have been the phenomena known as St. Elmo's Fire. The nitrogen and oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere cause St. Elmo's fire to give off a blue or violet light and usually only occurs during a thunderstorm. The witnesses described, quote, a white light traveling from east to west. As it appeared to come nearer or grow larger, it turned to a red color, end quote. The letter also refers to an independent investigation done by health physics officer, Mr. Oliver Harry Turner. It says, quote, he is of the opinion that the light was not the result of a natural phenomena, but caused by an unidentified flying object, either a cone from a satellite or a flying saucer, unquote. The letter goes on to say, quote, It is felt that all avenues of inquiry at Marilinga have now been covered, and it is not possible to positively identify the source of the light. It is felt, however, that the light was a result of either a meteor or static electricity, unquote. Other files reveal failed attempts by the Australian government to identify some of the objects. For example, on June 30, 1983, radar reporting units at RAAF Base Williamtown launched Operation Close Encounter. Two Royal Australian Air Force Mirage jets were placed on standby as base personnel made attempts to determine the cause of unidentified radar contact seen on screen at Mascot during the month of May and throughout June. After investigation, they concluded the radar contacts were probably false readings. The lack of a coherent threat solidified the official position that much of the RAAF's involvement in the UFO controversy fell outside the military domain. Another peculiar story from the files, which made international headlines, involves the disappearance of 20-year-old Frederick Valentich. On October 21, 1978, he was flying a Cessna 182L light aircraft from Melbourne, Victoria to King Island just off the south coast. After refueling in Moorabin, the pilot established two-way radio communication with the Melbourne Flight Service Unit, also known as FSU. The following is a reenactment of the transcribed radio transmission. It was first broadcast in 2008 by ABC Radio National from a now discontinued radio show called Radio I. Can you describe the, uh, the aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. I cannot identify it. It has such speed. It's before me right now, Melbourne. How large would the um, the object be? Seems like it's stationary. What it's doing right now is orbiting. The thing is just orbiting on top of me. It's also got a green light and a sort of metallic-like. It's shiny on the outside. At the end of the transmission, a metallic scraping sound is heard and communication was cut off and he was never heard from again. 
A wide search was conducted until October 25th, but nothing of the aircraft or pilot was ever found. The book Melbourne Episode, Case Study of a Missing Pilot, was published in 1986, written by former NASA research scientist Richard Haynes, who has recorded over 3,000 UFO reports. The first part of the book presents all relevant background information. The second part hypothetically reconstructs the last leg of Valentich's flight with four different theories for readers to consider and, using the evidence, draw their own conclusion about what took place. The third part covers details of the aftermath. Photos found in the archives reveal that in 1983, five years after the incident, parts of the plane wreckage that matched up with Valentius's Cessna washed up on Flinders Island, which is located across the bay from King Island with Bass Strait in between. According to newspaper articles, there were a total of four airplanes that had crashed in the area and a film crew had made plans to excavate the wreckage. It is not known if this task was completed. Australia's most famous UFO case is an incredible mass sighting referred to as Westall 66. There were over 90 witnesses, many of them school children from Westall High School playing cricket. The witnesses reported seeing three objects on April 6th, one of which apparently landed behind a stand of trees for a short period before taking off again at great speed. It was reported that aircraft operating in the area had approached the object, but a search through the files in the National Archives of Australia didn't turn up any correlating reports. Some Westall witnesses suspect that the reason there are no reports in the archives, even though it was estimated that there were over 100 witnesses, is the government attempting to cover up the whole affair. Upon examination, civilian researchers found marks in the ground where the Westall UFO was believed to have landed. Newspaper articles from the time linked these marks to what was called the saucer nest phenomena, mysterious circular marks in the ground found throughout Australia. One possible explanation for the Westall sightings appeared in a newspaper article published in 1967, about a year after the incident. It said a group of scientists under Dr. Robert S. Powell were building flying saucers propelled by ammonia vapor and a high-voltage spark that produced a mass of glowing gas, but this could not be confirmed. It has been 47 years since the sighting, and it still remains a mystery and has not been forgotten. A 50-minute documentary about the incident aired on Australian TV in June 2010. A local community council has also announced it will commemorate the sightings by building a playground with a replica of the UFO as described by the witnesses at the park where the sightings took place. Those are the Australian UFO files. For your need to know, I'm Alejandro Rojas. episode in our series covers Chile's government organization, which is the Committee for the Study of Anomalous Aerial Phenomena, otherwise known as CEFA. Chile is one of the few countries around the world that has a government-backed UFO research organization. In Spanish, UFOs are referred to as OVNIs. In 1997, the country publicly recognized it was experiencing UFO sightings. Some of the incidents could not be explained by natural phenomena and could not be identified as any type of man-made object. 
Even before 1997, commercial and military pilots in Chile had reported light phenomena meddling in their flight paths. The lights could not be explained by air traffic control because no other flights were scheduled in the area. Chile's Aviation Authority expressed the need to establish an organization to collect information on anomalous observations as they were taking place. In Chile, the Department of Civil Aeronautics is referred to as the DGAC. It is the equivalent of the United States Federal Aviation Administration. The DGAC set up the CEFA in October of 1997 to collect, analyze, and study all reports of unidentified aerial phenomena in cooperation with aeronautic specialists to determine if security is being compromised. The committee is dedicated to conducting serious, objective, and scientific investigations to ensure safety for all aviation operations. Although the committee was organized in 1997, they maintained a low profile due to shortage of funds and lack of interest. But in 2009, the organization was revitalized when the annual budget was increased. The officials in Chile have determined that some UFOs are real, may pose a threat to air safety, and should be officially investigated worldwide. One of the sightings leading up to the foundation of CEFAA is the Arica case. On October 7, 1997, an aircraft from the Chilean Army was doing a nighttime test flight at the Chacayuta Airport in Arica. The controller was receiving numerous phone calls from the city. He contacted the pilot who confirmed that he could see a light to the west that was changing position at high speed. The following is an excerpt from the official audio communication released in 2011 by Chile's largest daily newspaper. Fascinating. General Bermudez presented the details of this case at the International UFO Conference in 2012, and Leslie Keene followed up with a series of articles on HuffingtonPost.com that explained the analysis of the investigation. On the morning of November 5, 2010, at El Bosque Air Base in Santiago, during a change of command ceremony, a group of fighter jets performed an air show. Seven different spectators filmed the flyby, and the same anomalous object appeared in each of the seven videos. 
Images show it as a dome-shaped, flat-bottomed object with no visible means of propulsion. The rounded top reflects the sun and appears metallic. The bottom is darker and flat. The object emits some form of energy which is visible in photoanalysis. Infrared studies show the entire object radiating heat like the jets. Although some Chilean ufologists and skeptics have suggested that bugs and insects were flying near the cameras, General Bermudez does not accept that explanation. He stated via email, At this time, this incident cannot be scientifically explained. As agreed by those who have studied the videos, we can affirm that there is an unidentified aerial object present. We do not know where it is or where it came from. CEFAA has internal research consultants and external advisors from universities and other institutions who are experts in various fields of study, such as nuclear chemistry, aerospace medicine, astronomy, physics, and satellite imaging. Each branch of the armed forces and the police have representatives as well. Most reports come from pilots, air traffic controllers, and personnel directly involved with the airlines. If anything unusual is reported to the control tower, CEFAA is notified immediately. When a report is received, a basic check begins. First, they rule out natural phenomena and common misidentifications, such as satellites or weather balloons. The CEFAA procedure also requires information of the sighting be sent to other relevant agencies. If a sighting remains unexplained or if there are safety aspects that need to be addressed, a full investigation begins. If the case warrants, support can be requested from national and even international organizations. Other countries, such as Uruguay, have official agreements to exchange data. If there is photo or video evidence, the investigation continues with an image study where the committee analyzes the possibility of phenomena that could have affected the images. Then they generate a hypothesis and use the software to apply filters that improve the image quality or decompose the image. These techniques may offer a broader understanding of the photos that could lead to different explanations. When witnesses are involved, their identities are usually kept confidential. Witnesses complete a feedback form, and then CEFAA conducts an interview if necessary. Once all the information relating to an investigation is collected and analyzed, a report is filed and the case is labeled Resolved, Pending, or Unresolved slash UAP. In 2011, out of 183 cases, only 12 were considered unresolved. The current director of CEFAA is retired Air Force General Ricardo Bermudez. El fenómeno aéreo anómalo caracterizado como objeto volador no identificado es real. Real se presenta dentro del espacio aéreo controlado y fuera del espacio aéreo controlado y sobre el mar también. In 2012, he gave a presentation at the International UFO Congress. As you can see in, in this chart, the area under our responsibility is very big. Almost 20 million square nautical miles. All communication between the different control centers and the corresponding crews are recorded. The, the CEFA has access to all this information immediately. As a matter of fact, we know what is going on between pilot and controller in a flight. This is our main source of information. Open Minds journalist Antonio Junez interviewed General Bermudez after his lecture. I had the advantage that I, had, um, I was a member of the Chilean Air Force, a general, you know, and, and I, when um, uh, the, 
director of Nauta sent me, okay, you are going to, to say again the, the committee. I put my condition. And the condition was to work with the universities, doctors, and uh, the armed forces and police corps, you know, and serious investigators. And put all together, you know, in, in that way. And that that not happen in other countries. That not happen. It's difficult. I spoke with Antonio Junez, who was responsible for bringing General Bermudez to the IUFOC, about the difference when dealing with someone from an official agency which is supported by its government, and about the future of CEFA. It was basically a formality. But uh, yes, I wrote the letter, and then um, they, they responded, um, saying that they would be uh, pleased, you know, to send him or whatever. They accepted the invitation, and, you know, from then on, you know, then... You know, the arrangements had to be, uh, you know, the typical arrangements for any speaker, right? The, you know, the expenses and all that. And, well, that was it. So when he, uh, General Bermudez was out here, did you get to speak to him at all about the future of CEFA? Did he share it with you, any of that information? Well, what he told me is when they reorganized the agency, uh, which was in uh, at the end of 2009, I believe, because the agency had been semi-dormant, not entirely killed, but at a very, very low profile. They asked him because he had done you know, such a good job already previously and already was familiar with it. But he put conditions. He said, yes, I will, I will do it, but under these conditions. And so he wanted basically to have a scientific um, uh, committee of advisors from universities and, and several other uh, items and be full time and they accepted his conditions. So these conditions are kind of implied for the future. In the conclusion of his speech, though, he made a very important statement. He said that the only way we're ever going to really solve this phenomenon has to be tackled internationally. And so it should be done through the UN, that that outer space committee that had been proposed years ago at the UN should be revived. That's basically what he was saying. In 2010, the CEFAA representative from the Chilean Army, Major Rodrigo Bravo, published Ufology Aeronautics, a new concept in the study of UFOs. It is the first book published by a military pilot in Chile who is currently in active duty. Bravo is not new to the study of UFOs. Back in the year 2000, he wrote an official thesis titled Introduction to Anomalous Aerial Phenomena and Its Implications for Aerospace Security. He also maintains a blog called Contingency UFO. Major Bravo is also well known in the U.S. as a panelist at the National Press Club event organized by filmmaker James Fox and journalist Leslie Keane in November 2007. He is also one of the contributors in Keane's book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Earlier this year, the Center for UFO Research collaborated with Ken Center and Leslie Keane to present a more evidence-based approach to researching UFO sightings. The result was a symposium on official and scientific investigations of unidentified aerial phenomena. We were able to interview CEFA researcher Jose Ley at the symposium. We have uh, worked with the United States through our good friend Dr. Richard Haynes and also with Dr. Bruce McCabe, to whom we have sent some some uh, photographs for, for analysis that our own uh, analysts, we have also our own photo analysts that require a, a, 
a little more explanation and then to make uh, sure that we have several different opinions that will make a more objective uh, conclusion. In that sense, we have uh, worked with the United States. Former NASA research scientist Dr. Richard Haynes founded the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena, or NARCAP, in 1999. In December of 2010, the CEFAA and NARCAP signed an official joint research agreement. Reports from this joint research effort can be downloaded from the CEFAA website. The website also contains photos and audio recordings from other unsolved cases. Historical cases, news, and current events are also featured. When it comes to official UFO disclosure, Chile is now leading the way. Let's hope that other nations will also join and work together to find answers to this perplexing phenomena. You can find additional information on cfaa.cl or search openminds.tv. For your need to know, I'm Tina Good. report in our series is titled The Rand Corporation and UFOs. The Rand Corporation, originally published in November of 1968, a highly interesting and objective study titled UFOs, What to Do. It was on May 14, 1948, that Project Rand, an outgrowth of World War II, separated from the Douglas Aircraft Company of Santa Monica, California, and became an independent, non-profit organization. Adopting its name from a contraction of the term research and development, the newly formed entity was dedicated to furthering and promoting scientific education and charitable purposes for the public welfare and security of the United States. Almost at once, Rand developed a unique style blending scrupulous nonpartisanship with rigorous fact-based analysis to tackle society's most pressing problems. Since its beginnings, many of Rand's contracts were linked to the military. Top secret studies dealing with enemy missile strength, war game scenarios, and other thorny national security issues. So in this context, it's not so surprising to see that the Rand Corporation has roots in ufology dating back to the 1940s. When the first official U.S. Air Force study called Project Sign released its final technical report titled Unidentified Aerial Objects in 1949, the document stated very clearly that the Rand Corporation was assisting the UFO project along with consultants Dr. J. Allen Hynek from Ohio State University, Dr. Irving Langweir of General Electric Research, and Dr. G. Valley from MIT. Page three of this report states, quote, inasmuch as various surmises have been advanced that some of the reported observations may have represented spaceships or satellite vehicles, a special study has been initiated with the RAND Corporation under the RAND project to provide an analysis from this standpoint and also to provide fundamental information pertaining to the basic design and performance characteristics that might distinguish a possible spaceship, end quote. We now know that this was just a preliminary undertaking, which consisted of a RAND project study prepared by Dr. James Everett Lipp, an aeronautical engineer, 
then serving as head of RAND's Missiles Division. The study was published as Appendix D of Project Science Final Technical Report. A second and more comprehensive RAND Corporation study on UFOs was written by George Kocher and published, quote, for RAND use only on November 27, 1968. The document was released at a critical time, a few months after the University of Colorado's official Condon Committee completed its scientific study of unidentified flying objects. While the Condon report concluded, as put by the Air Force News release, quote, Further extensive study of UFO sightings is not justified in the expectation that science will be advanced, end quote. The Rand Corporation dealt with the opposite side of the coin, what to do with UFOs. The document itself is broken into five different essays, an example of a proposed UFO report form and a bibliography citing major sources. The first essay explores the historical aspects of UFOs, giving a pre-1947 overview of major sightings along with a more modern breakdown of the phenomenon. The next essay is devoted to the astronomical aspects of UFOs, mentioning the number of potential stars in the galaxy that may have inhabited planets. Kocher bypasses the astronomical argument of the huge distances in interstellar travel by stating, Quote, I suggest that if a way to circumvent the speed of light restriction is possible, it has already been found by someone in our galaxy, end quote. And he writes at the end of the section that, quote, thus we may conclude that it is very likely that at least one and probably many of the hundred million planetary populations is capable of interstellar travel, end quote. In the following two essays, The Character of Reports and Phenomenological Aspects, Kocher analyzes the types of reports and patterns that can be extracted from them. It also gives detailed examinations of specific sightings. Another portion of the phenomenological essay is devoted to categorizing UFO sightings by shape, color, and luminous and kinematic behaviors. In the final essay, UFOs, how to proceed and why, the document lists suggestions made by Professor James McDonald of various hypotheses that exist surrounding the phenomenon. Finally, the RAND study makes the key recommendation of establishing, quote, a central receiving agency, end quote, staffed with competent UFO investigators and scientific consultants in several fields. Also mentioned is the role of media, stating, quote, the press should be encouraged to report sightings accurately and in a non-sensational manner. Suitable reporting would encourage other witnesses to come forth, end quote. Finally, the document gives an example of a detailed UFO report form developed by the University of Colorado Study Group. Interestingly, while the Condon study concluded that the official Project Blue Book should be terminated, the RAND essay proposed instead the creation of an objective central reporting agency for investigating objectively UFO reports. Unfortunately, no one in the U.S. government seemed to care about this intriguing essay by George Kocher. It is pretty obvious that this document was not a high priority for the RAND Corporation, as it was never followed up or peer-reviewed. The original cover page clearly states RAND document, 
It has a file number and it states at the bottom of the page, quote, for RAND use only. It's also listed on the RAND Corporation's own reports and bookstore page, where it can be downloaded for free in PDF form or purchased in print. The author, George Kocher, was obviously a RAND scientist. There are several others of his publications available as well, most of them on astronomical subjects. Additional analysis of this document can be found in a two-part series that I wrote in the Open Minds website, where you can also download... our series is titled UFO Documents and the FBI Vault. Recently, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, or FBI, posted a story on their website claiming that a UFO memo from 1950 was their most viewed document on the entire FBI Vault website. Major news organizations such as CNN and NBC News reported on this document which was actually released under the Freedom of Information Act and available since the late 70s. The document generating this attention is a simple one-page memo called the Guy Hotel Memo. Its contents were written on March 22, 1950 by Guy Hotel, a special agent in charge of the Washington Field Office. The subject line reads simply, Flying Saucers, while the first paragraph is mostly blacked out. The second paragraph goes deeper into what has commonly been interpreted as related to the Roswell UFO crash of 1947. It states, quote, an investigator for the Air Force stated that three so-called flying saucers had been recovered in New Mexico. They were described as being circular in shape with raised centers approximately 50 feet in diameter, end quotes. It goes on to describe the condition of the three bodies found in the crash. The next paragraph hypothesizes the cause, stating, quote, due to the fact that the government has a very high-powered radar set up in that area, and it is believed the radar interfere with the controlling mechanism of the saucers, end quote. The memo ends abruptly with a sentence stating that no further evaluations were attempted. UFO researcher Bruce McAbee was the first to obtain this document via an FOIA request, and researchers have been debating its contents ever since. McAbee and other UFO researchers believe this memo to be part of an elaborate hoax. The description of the incident correlates closely, not with the Roswell incident, but with the claims of an oilman named Silas Newton. Newton claimed to have received this information by a scientist he calls Dr. Gee. Newton was able to convince journalist Frank Scully his story was real, which resulted in the publication of Scully's book, Behind the Flying Saucers, containing Newton's material. Later, it was discovered that Newton was a shady businessman, and Dr. Gee was really a friend named Leo Gebauer, who was neither a scientist nor did he have government connections. It's believed that Special Agent Hotel heard of Newton's stories, which prompted the memo. Other researchers, however, maintained there was something to the Scully story about a UFO crash in Aston, New Mexico in 1948. And a book was published recently examining this case in detail. 
The vault was created in 2011 as a storehouse for commonly requested FBI documents already released under the FOIA, making it easier for people to consult and request documents. Go to vault.fbi.gov. From there, you can easily search a multitude of topics ranging from counterterrorism to unexplained phenomena. A quick search using the keyword UFO yielded hundreds of pages of documents on Roswell, Project Blue Book, NICAP, and a plethora of memos, handwritten notes, citing reports, and newspaper clippings. Most of these documents belong to the early flying saucer era in the late 40s, when the FBI was officially involved in assisting the first Air Force UFO projects. Legendary FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, who didn't want to be under anybody's authority, eventually pulled the Bureau out of its official involvement in the Air Force UFO project. Nevertheless, the FBI continued to monitor certain UFO activities, particularly those involving sightings at atomic installations and other classified facilities, like the Los Alamos and Oak Ridge National Laboratories. In the Cold War climate that dominated that period, Hoover was concerned that a foreign power could manipulate UFO sightings for its own purposes. Some citizens also submitted UFO information to the Bureau, like a file containing a memo written to the director of the FBI about a then-recent sighting with an enclosed newspaper article in which a schoolboy describes his sighting and photograph. Another item that seemed to preoccupy Director Hoover was the anti-nuclear weapons philosophy embraced by the early UFO contactees like George Adamski. Not that Hoover believed in their claims of meeting real ETs. In fact, he didn't, as can be seen in some documents. But he considered these beliefs subversive. You will even find occasionally FBI memos and documents containing the dreaded X mark, the so-called X-Files made famous by the TV series. However, the X in these documents denotes counterintelligence and espionage and not any kind of paranormal phenomenon. The rest of the files in the FBI vault collection encompass a wide range of various letters, memos, and newspaper clippings. All these files are stored permanently on the FBI's vault website and can be accessed and downloaded free of charge. Not all the FBI UFO-related files are on the vault. A dossier on contactee George Adamski, for instance, is not posted online. You can find additional analysis on the history of the FBI's real X-Files in an article I posted on the Open Minds website. For your need to know, I'm Antonio Munez. recognized as a UFO hotspot by ufologists and researchers alike. Some believe that archaeological wonders such as the Nazca Lines in Machu Picchu are evidence that ancient astronauts visited the area and are possibly still visiting today. On top of its rich archaeological connection and a large populace that holds an interest in the phenomenon, Peru stands out as a country that takes UFO sightings very seriously through its official government UFO research agency. 
In October of 2013, the Peruvian Air Force Directorate of Aerospace Interests, or DINAE, announced it would reinstate the subdivision now called the Anomalous Aerial Phenomena Research Department, or DIFAA. A unique civilian advisory council composed of researchers and scientists assists the research department, with Commander Julio Cesar Chamorro Flores acting as a key part of the council. He served as director of Peru's previous UFO research department, the Office of Investigation of Aerial Anomalous Phenomena, known as OIFAA, from 2001 to 2005. The announcement to reopen the department followed an increase in sightings throughout the country. According to reports, luminous objects were observed by residents of Marabamaba, a city in the province of Huanuco, located in the central Andes. A Peruvian television show, The Sixth Day, investigated the case for an episode which had aired in September of 2013. During the investigation, the production crew also filmed several daytime luminous objects appearing close to the ground. Sightings were also reported south of Lima in La Molina and Chilca. The DIFAA serves as a system for Peru's Air Force to track UFOs nationwide. Colonel Julio Vucetich has communicated to the press that DIFAA hopes to serve as an outlet for people who observe unconventional phenomena. Citizens can submit UFO sighting reports with photographic evidence and testimony to DINAE by going to their website, dinae.fap.mil.pe, and emailing or calling their telephone hotline. When an anomalous light or object is reported, the department cross-checks the information with the control towers of the nearest airports in order to prevent accidents and create documentation of the event. The objective is to use these records to distinguish any patterns that could help investigators identify the objects, which reportedly vary in shape from spheres and cylinders to diamonds and luminous triangles. It has also been documented that unknown objects are frequently appearing in the vicinity of important archaeological sites. In September of 2013, the Mutual UFO Network established operations in Peru. Their website, moveonperu.org, features a few notable cases. Report number REP-24 includes a photograph taken on July 29, 2012, which shows two objects in the sky above Machu Picchu. The witness testimony states that it was a normal day with clear skies and they had not noticed anything unusual while taking the photo. The archaeological area is a no-fly zone, so it's uncommon for any aircraft to be in the area. During a photo analysis, investigators suggested the possibility that the objects may be stains on the camera sensor or insects. However, they further remarked that this is a very rare possibility, since the two objects are so similar and elliptical in shape. The case still remains open. Another interesting case is report number REP-22. It shows a UFO-shaped rock carving that was found sometime between 1930 and 1960 in the desert of Nazca. The rock is seven inches wide, four and a half inches tall, and weighs approximately seven pounds. On the surface of the rock, several figures are depicted similar to the Nazca symbols. The owner of the rock has not consented to analysis, but MUFON Peru has said it will update their website as soon as they have access to any test results. On October 18, 2013, the Peruvian Air Force hosted a symposium on unusual aerial phenomena at the Director of Aerospace Interest Headquarters, where officials gave formal explanation of the Anomalous Aerial Phenomena Research Department. They defined the DIFAA as Peru's official organization that will study and research UFO sightings 
audience in order to gather and organize information to develop accurate understanding of the phenomenon from the standpoint of national security. Civilian Advisory Council members also gave brief presentations on subjects such as the Nazca Lines, exopolitics, and the possible implications of an extraterrestrial presence. Perhaps one of the most well-known UFO incidents in Peru is the La Jolla case, a dogfight with UFOs that took place in April of 1980. Commander Oscar Santa Maria Huerta's testimony of the event is featured in Leslie Kane's book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. The case was also featured in the History Channel's UFO Hunters. Recently, Commander Santa Maria spoke about the confrontation at the UFO World Forum in Brazil the weekend of May 16th. In the June-July 2013 issue of Open Minds magazine, Commander Julio Chamorro revealed how stunned he was to find that there was not any official documentation of this case from the Peruvian authorities. The case was publicized in a declassified document issued by the United States Defense Intelligence Agency. Chamorro confirmed that the only corresponding information in Peru's files was a record showing a jet took off on that date and the direction of the flight. There should have been additional records to keep track of how much time, fuel, and ammunition was used, but they were noticeably missing from the report. The event took place in Arequipa, Peru, and was witnessed by nearly 2,000 base personnel. Chamorro says it was the time of day when all of the personnel stand in formation to receive orders and then go to work. They all saw some sort of craft at the end of a runway. A jet was scrambled, but every time the jet locked onto the object, it would maneuver out of the way. Huertes piloted the jet that pursued the object, and he says he fired 60 rounds of 30-millimeter shells, but it had little effect. He says one of the rounds would have blown up a truck, but this object seemed to absorb them. After 22 minutes of chasing the object, Huertes reports he was running out of fuel and had to return to the base. Another interesting case involves the former president of Peru, Mr. Alberto Fujimori. He enjoyed fishing in the jungle and allegedly had a UFO sighting in the Amazon while at Lake Charo back in 1991. Chamorro was informed of the sighting by a former crew member of an Air Force seaplane that was used by President Fujimori for fishing. The witness said the group had observed a large craft flying slowly over a lagoon in the jungle. He also mentioned that the presence of the object did not trouble Fujimori, and he continued fishing as if nothing had happened. The witness claims he waited to report the incident until after President Fujimori's turn to avoid any reprisal. Former OIFAA investigator Anthony Choi is a doctor and attorney. He spearheaded the research of a more recent sighting called the Chulacanas incident. On October 13, 2001, in the northern city of Chulacanas, Hundreds of witnesses observed eight spheres of light of an intense red-orange color. The objects were suspended in the air for hours, moving in and out of formation in an apparently intelligent manner. The objects were silent and eventually disappeared from sight. The incident was recorded on video and given to the Air Force. Sightings also took place in the same area on October 25th and November 13th of the same year. The Chulacanas incident was labeled the first official UFO investigation in Peru. The case remains open and individual investigators continue to search for an identification because the official preliminary investigation was unable to explain the sighting. After many years of research, travel, and collecting evidence from all over Peru, Dr. Anthony Choi has identified 23 areas of intense UFO activity covering almost 75% of Peru. 
Dr. Choi spoke about the unexplained sightings of the National Press Club UFO event in 2007. He said, the evidence we have from actual UFO cases and incidents that have taken place in our country show that the UFO phenomenon remains one of the greatest challenges to our current knowledge of science and technology. Peru's Air Force Colonel Vesetich told The Guardian, many people don't report UFO sightings because they fear they will be labeled mad or made fun of. But nowadays, with new technology, cell phones, videos, Facebook, Twitter, they can be much more open. He added, this new office needs these people to come and report their sightings so we can open a file and, using their information, do the respective analysis and investigation. Peru's Anomalous Aerial Phenomenal Research Department is one of several such organizations in Latin America. They all seek to bring more understanding to the UFO phenomenon and believe the subject needs to be taken more seriously. For your need to know, I'm Maureen Ellsbury. Phrases in government intelligence and military circles is need to know, usually referred to as a level of security clearance. In this new series that we've titled, Your Need to Know, I will deliver past official documentation produced by various international governments on the UFO phenomenon. increased interest in UFOs. Much of the population has become familiar with many of the stories of crashes and sightings throughout the world in the past 70 years. What most are not aware of or have forgotten is the large amount of official government documentation about events and occurrences in this field. In my 35-year career as a UFO journalist and researcher, I have not only been made aware of documents, but have also been involved in writing some as well as attending the famous United Nations hearings on this issue. The first in our series will be the UFO briefing document, The Best Available Evidence, which is part of the so-called Rockefeller UFO Initiative. I had the opportunity to work on this project in the mid-90s, which was funded completely by Lawrence Rockefeller. This document was intended to educate higher government officials and DITs of what occurred up to that date and what government officials stated about the phenomenon in hopes of bringing about objective disclosure. It contains a complete case history report of major UFO events that happened worldwide from the 1940s to the 1990s. The report concisely summarizes the main UFO cases from each witness's perspective, providing official testimonies and in some cases original photograph of the events. The report goes on to give a thorough analysis of the major U.S. government-funded studies that took place, starting with Project Sign, how it transformed into Project Grudge, and finally Project Blue Book. From there, it explores the congressional hearings held on the topic, which presented the government's conclusion of Blue Book and the Condon Committee. Given the global nature of this phenomenon, it was prudent to include major international agreements and resolutions on the topic. This includes an unidentified objects clause in the bilateral USA-USSR agreement to reduce the risk of nuclear war. How the country of Grenada lobbied to recognize the issue in the United Nations and the European Parliament's report on the phenomenon. Further, it goes on to give more in-depth quoted testimony from prominent worldwide government and military officials, scientists, and astronauts. 
Some of the quotes include General Douglas MacArthur, who was quoted in the New York Times. Quote, because of the developments of science, all the countries on Earth will have to unite to survive and to make a common front against attack by people from other planets. The politics of the future will be cosmic or interplanetary. President Harry Truman said at the time of his presidency, quote, I can assure you that flying saucers, given that they exist, are not constructed by any power on Earth. Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill, who has to be thoroughly briefed on the topic, said, quote, what does all this stuff about flying saucers amount to? What can it mean? What is the truth? The impact of the UFO briefing document was limited in political terms. More people were interested in the fact that Lawrence Rockefeller had sponsored it than in the content inside. Internationally, though, France was an exception. This document led to the production of the French Comita Report, which is arguably one of the most persuasive documents ever published regarding the UFO phenomenon. If you're interested in reading UFO briefing document, the best available evidence, you can download a PDF from our website at openminds.tv. I will continue to bring you reports of major documents that exist in ufology. Up next will be the French Comita. Episode, we will explore Uruguay's UFO investigations. Uruguay is one of the smallest countries in South America, and witnesses have reported phenomenon there since 1947. It is one of the countries where the military seems to be more open-minded towards the UFO phenomenon. In 1979, the president of Uruguay established the Commission for Receiving and Investigating Complaints of Unidentified Flying Objects, or CURDOGNI, as an official department of the Uruguayan Air Force. The Commission receives, researches, and investigates UFO sightings as part of their routine activity, and they openly explore the possibility of extraterrestrial origins. Since 1979, Kradovny has received an average of 100 cases per year. Since the organization started over 30 years ago, only about 40 cases remain unsolved. These are the unusual cases that range from alleged abductions to landings of unidentified aircraft. Colonel Ariel Sanchez is the principal investigator and president of the organization. Colonel Sanchez has 33 years of active service. He attended military aviation school, is an aviation safety specialist, has training in air traffic control and radar operations. He also served as a witness at the Citizens Hearing on Disclosure in May of 2013. In 2012, the Brazilian magazine Revista UFO published an extensive two-part interview with Colonel Sanchez, where he emphasized our files contain any kind of UFO cases you would see in the X-Files. Kradovny's staff dedicates time to UFO research and is on standby to respond to reports that are made. The team responds to incidents in uniform. They interview witnesses, collect samples, and gather data so the UFO investigation can be carried out. Colonel Sanchez explained that they conduct police-style investigations into the most compelling cases. The main priority of Kradovny is to gather case records and develop guidelines confirming the veracity of objects observed. For instance, the investigators first will consider if a sighting could be caused by atmospheric events or the landing of a foreign aircraft. In some cases, it has been considered that the anomalous object in question might be some sort of monitoring probe. And even the extraterrestrial theory is research based on scientific analysis. 
One of the most fascinating aspects confirmed by the commission has been the change of chemical compositions of soil where landings are reported. The unexplained cases have been kept open and all of the country's UFO files were declassified in 2009. A Uruguayan newspaper was given access to the files and was able to publicize some of the information. One of the most well-known cases took place in the town of Florida. The witness, Hector Rofino Delgado, captured photos of a UFO on July 11, 1977. The photos were published in Open Minds magazine. Guillermo Roncaroni, an investigator from Argentina, has done extensive research on the case. According to Roncaroni, in the third photo it shows the object is rotating on its vertical axis at a considerable speed. Another notable case occurred in 1986 when a group of Pucara planes responded to reports of a luminous sphere over Palmar Dam. The sphere flew off at a high rate of speed toward Argentina and could not be followed. When pilots returned to their base, the sphere reappeared over the dam. It changed colors from red to yellow. After another chase, the object vanished from sight. Shortly after the sighting, the city of Montevideo experienced a blackout. Recently, Kradovny announced it would analyze photographs taken by actress Maria Fernanda Romero. She observed an unknown object moving toward the horizon while taking a photo of the sunset. The camera was only able to capture a pink streak of light that many consider to be a lens flare or a meteorite. The Unidentified Flying Objects Investigation Center, or COV, was a civilian organization that conducted UFO investigations in Uruguay from 1958 until 2008. They established many methods for UFO investigation. Other groups, such as the Unusual Area Phenomena Study Group, remain active. To extend its outreach, Kradovny established their own civilian section, which is known as the Regional Center for Investigation of Aerospace and Terrestrial Phenomena, or CRIFAT. This committee has been operating since April 2001. CRIFAT receives reports through letters, emails, and phone calls. Then, to conduct a full investigation, they bring together various groups and independent researchers who gather evidence using various scientific methods. This enables them to collect and classify information, compare unusual cases, create a database, and determine standards. CRIFAT also offers certification in UFO research to groups and individuals that comply with the requirements of the center. This certification allows researchers and investigators to develop technical activity or scientific research with recognition of the center. The focus of ufology in Uruguay is based on an impartial interpretation of the evidence and phenomena. They try not to encourage or discourage any particular point of view and stay open to discuss any alternative interpretation. Using the information in a selective way, the groups work together and share information through lectures, conferences, interviews, and journalistic notes as a socio-cultural activity to benefit the public and all of humanity. In November 2010, Uruguay hosted their first international conference on investigation of aerospace and terrestrial phenomena. This was the first time a UFO event was sponsored by the Air Force in Uruguay. The MUFON network has set up a website at MUFONUruguay.org. There are links to file a UFO sighting in English or Spanish. One important side note that the website emphasizes is that about 95% of cases have a logical explanation. Sighting reports can be reviewed along with analysis and updates. One rather interesting report featured on the page is Case 30. It is the alleged landing of a craft in the rural region of Colonia in April of 2013. The event was featured on the local news shortly after the incident occurred. According to the landowner, the Uruguayan Air Force has closed off the exact location of the alleged landing. 
They have covered up the soil with a tarp in order to preserve any evidence, and photos of the site are prohibited. Fortunately, MUFON field researcher Fabian Gonzalez was able to visit the site, and he was able to take a look at the soil under the tarp. He reported a burned area on the ground that was in the shape of a circle about two feet in diameter. In the center, there were six wells about 23 inches deep. There were also three indentations of identical size and depth forming a triangle surrounding the burnt area. Cordovia investigators had the soil remains analyzed by the University of the Republic. According to Mufan Uruguay's website, the terrain analysis yielded no results. Another location in Uruguay that has become somewhat of a tourist attraction is known as Estancia La Aurora. The site is an agricultural cattle farm established near the city of Salto. Since the 1970s, many stories of strange lights, UFOs, and other unexplained phenomena have been reported in the area. Incidents at La Aurora have been investigated by Kradovni, but they have not found anything abnormal about the area. Despite that, the area continues to be a tourist attraction for the country. Many visit the area seeking a healing experience. The soil in the area is rich with quartz, and according to folklore, the location is on what shamans call a world axis. Another theory is that the private area is used for some type of military operation, such as the testing of a prototype aircraft. The 3% of Kradovni's unsolved cases all contain strange circumstances, so there is still research to be done in the country of Uruguay. There's also much we can learn from the many years of experience of this professional organization. Colonel Sanchez maintains an optimistic attitude and has said that with the help of the people, they can continue to keep the airspace in Uruguay safe for pilots. For your need to know, this is Tina Goodson. episode in our series is titled The Cometa Report. Cometa was a high-level French UFO study organization composed of high-ranking officers and officials, some of whom held command posts in the military, intelligence, and aerospace industry. The name Cometa in English stands for Committee for In-Depth Studies. The study was carried out over a several-year period at the Institute of Advanced Studies for National Defense, or IHEDN a high-level French military think tank, and was released in 1999. The report is arranged in three parts, along with a section of conclusions and recommendations, also an appendix section. Part one of the report lays out the facts and testimonies from credible, well-documented cases observed from around the world. This includes detailed descriptions of the events from pilots, navigators, and air traffic controllers. It also gives thorough descriptions of famous close encounters that happened in France, including the Trans-en-Provence landing case in 1981, in which a silent ovoid-shaped object descended into a farmer's backyard, rested for a second, then ascended quickly and disappeared into the sky. This simple visual sighting also had visible mechanical tracks and imprints in the shape of a crown, which pushed the case into the domain of the unexplained. Soil samples were taken and showed the vegetation's ability to produce photosynthesis had been considerably altered. Part 2 explores our current knowledge base of the phenomenon. 
starting with organization phase, which positions how different groups like the Gendarmerie Nationale, the Air Force, and the Civil Aviation Authority will work together. The report then explains how the different UAPs unexplained aerospace phenomena are classified, including investigations of famous worldwide aeronautical cases, radar sightings, and close-up sightings in France. This chapter further goes on to discuss the varying hypotheses surrounding the modes of travel these UFOs may possess. Finally, this chapter discusses the research and conclusions the United States has reached, including the mention of the 1947 UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico, as being true. Part three of the Cometa report deals with defense and the many implications that come with disclosure. It hypothesizes who the extraterrestrials are, their intentions, and what circumstances we as humans should prepare for. From there, it discusses the varying occupations that may be more prone to sightings, such as flight crews, air traffic controllers, and meteorologists, and how they should respond in case of a sighting. It also explores the media's role in reporting sightings and what attitudes it can adopt to better report on this phenomenon. The report ends with a list of appendices dealing with topics on radar detection, astronomer sightings, life in the universe, colonization of space, and a chronological history of the UFO phenomenon. The French government did not commission the Cometa report as an official report. However, before it was released to the public, it was first sent to French President Jacques Chirac and the Prime Minister Lionel Jospin. The report concludes that about 5% of the UFO cases they studied were unable to be explained. Thus, the best hypothesis to explain them was the extraterrestrial hypothesis. At the time of its release in 1999, the Cometa report caused quite a media stir in France but its impact on the French government's UFO policies seemed less certain. However, in 2007, the French National Space Agency, CNAS, reorganized and upgraded its UFO department, JPAN, beginning also the process of releasing its files through their official website. But that's the subject for another episode later in the series. For You Need to Know, this is Antonio Juneus. episode in our series is titled Canada's Official UFO Studies. We will explore two of Canada's UFO reporting agencies, Project Magnet and Second Story, both established in the early 1950s. Also, we will examine some details of the infamous Shade Harbor UFO incident. This case is one of the very few where a government agency formally acknowledges an unidentified flying object. It was determined that no known aircraft was involved in the incident, so the source remains unknown to this day. Now, Project Magnet was established in December 1950. The intent of the project was to collect data and apply it to practical engineering and technology. The main focus was in understanding the physics of geomagnetism and the possibility of using the Earth's magnetic field as a source of propulsion. The Canadian Department of Transportation senior engineer, William B. Smith, directed the program. 
The creation of the project is credited to a memo that Smith sent to the Department of Transportation in November of 1950. Smith felt he had discovered how UFOs operated and the investigation of UFOs could lead to incredible advancements in technology. According to Smith, the existence of a different technology is borne out by the investigations which are being carried on at the present time in relation to flying saucers. Smith also advised the Department of Transportation that having made a number of discreet inquiries at the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C., he had learned the following, that A, the matter is the most highly classified subject in the United States government, rating higher even than the H-bomb, B, flying saucers exist, C, their modus operandi is unknown, but concentrated effort is being made by a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush. And D, the entire matter is considered by the United States authorities to be of tremendous significance. Smith issued reports in 1952 and 1953 as he became more certain of his theory that UFOs manipulated magnetism for flight. He also concluded that mankind has failed to grasp this concept due to the lack of attention to the structure of the Earth's magnetic fields in our study of physics. Project Magnet went defunct in 1954. Smith continued his extraterrestrial studies until his death in 1962. With his last 10 years of study, Smith released a book titled The New Science. He also wrote a number of articles for Topside, a publication of the Ottawa New Sciences Club. A collection of those articles was published in 1969 under the title The Boys from Topside. Now, Project Second Story was a parallel UFO study program established by the Canadian government in April 1952. The Defense Research Board sponsored the project. The members of the committee, which included William B. Smith, came together from other government agencies. The committee was solely dedicated to dealing with flying saucer reports. The main purpose was to compile a catalog of sightings with correlating data from the sighting reports. In an attempt to minimize the personal equation and create a measure of truthfulness in each report, interrogators used an instructional guide along with a questionnaire developed for the agency. The questionnaire consisted of 28 questions. It included details on the observer asking if they had previous relevant experience, had seen objects before, or wore glasses. It also requested details on the observation, position, number of objects, length of time observed, shape, size, color, and it even inquired about weather conditions. Each questionnaire ended with the interrogator's opinion of the reliability of the observer. According to information made public by the Canadian government, the work of Project Second Story ceased in 1953. The meeting minutes are available to the public, but only for the first few meetings. The short-lived lifespan of the project suggests the possibility that the committee was simply not interested or not equipped to create a method conducive of scientific conclusion. The details contained in these declassified reports may be helpful to independent researchers today, inspiring individuals to make contributions to help build an improved scientific method to collect data on sightings. Completed questionnaires can be found by searching the Library and Archives of Canada's website. 
Unfortunately, these programs were shut down long before one of the most talked about sightings in Nova Scotia, Canada. Shag Harbor is located in the Gulf of Maine on the southern tip of Nova Scotia. On the night of October 4, 1967, at about 11.20 p.m., or Royal Canadian Mounted Police Corporal and six other witnesses observed the impact of an unknown object into the water. Assuming an aircraft had crashed, officers of the RCMP quickly assembled a rescue mission. Within about 15 minutes, officers arrived on the scene, and with the help of local fishermen, within half an hour they had boats out. The fishermen remember traveling through thick, glittery yellow foam to get to where they remember the object entering the water. In the days following the sighting, the Department of National Defense and Royal Canadian Navy divers conducted a three-day underwater search, combing the sea floor, but no trace of any object was found. The only documentation of the incident that exists today is a Department of National Defense memo that reads, quote, the object was described as approximately 60 feet in length and was flying in an easterly direction when first sighted. During their observation, the UFO descended rapidly to the surface and made a bright splash as it struck in the water. For some time after the impact, a single white light remained on the surface, unquote. At that time, the University of Colorado's UFO Research Project, known as the Condon Committee, was in operation. Their report summary, Case 34, North Atlantic, Fall 1967, consisted of just a few phone calls to sources in the area. The concluding remarks were, quote, No further investigation by the project was considered justifiable particularly in view of the immediate and thorough search that had been carried out by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Maritime Command, unquote. But after noting that no aircraft had been reported missing, no alternate explanation was offered. The case is considered unsolved in the Condon Report. Lingering questions inspired UFO researchers to launch an investigation which was documented on the History Channel's UFO Files Canada's Roswell that aired in August 2006. The documentary suggests the government has additional information related to the incident and the researchers also uncovered documents that convinced them that the case should have never been closed. For your need to know, I'm Alejandro Rojas. episode in our series is titled Italy's Fascist UFO Files. If these documents from the Mussolini era are authentic and the research so far shows they are, then the history of official ufology doesn't begin in America in the late 40s but in Italy in the 30s. It is important to point out that these were the original papers and not photocopies or photos of the documents. That means that forensic analysis of the paper, ink, an aging process can be conducted, which cannot be done with copies. According to a thorough investigation conducted by Antonio Garavaglia, a forensic expert accredited with the Italian Ministry of Justice, they are authentic. I myself met Garavaglia at the San Marino UFO Symposium in 2000, where he told me in an interview, quote, listen, 
I'm not a UFO expert, and I can only comment about these specific documents which I myself analyze. And I have to tell you, they are authentic. End quote. Additional research done by Andrea Bedetti, a historian and expert on Italy's fascist era, found that the stationary, aeronautical terminology, and vocabulary were all consistent with real documents from the period. As sightings of objects referred in the documents as, quote, unconventional flying vehicles, end quote, were reported throughout Italy, the fascist regime created a secret committee to investigate and cover up these incidents. The committee was known as Cabinet RS-33 and was led by Italy's top scientist, the renowned inventor Guillermo Marconi, until his death in 1937. The raveling of this fascinating story began in the mid-90s when the famous Italian ufologist and author Roberto Pinotti received a series of documents on stationery bearing the seal of the kingdom's senate and Agenza Stephanie, the regime news agency in charge of disseminating fascist propaganda. Pinotti explained this affair in an exclusive interview with myself during the International UFO Congress in February of 2012. The story of the so-called fascist files became, began in 1997. We received from an unknown source. Uh, this guy said he was a relative of uh, a man who had taken part in a committee during the fascist era uh, for the study of uh, UFOs. Of course, at that time, UFOs were not called so. The name uh, the regime uh, chose for them was unconventional flying vehicles. And uh, this uh, uh, commission, uh, headed by Guglielmo uh, Marconi, uh, was uh, uh, built up by Mussolini only because he thought that these new flying devices might be simply uh, a new technical uh, means of uh, uh, any other European country, that is England, France, Germany. And so this, the, the purpose of uh, this uh, group was just to study and to copy the technology of these new uh, aerial vehicles. One of the documents from 1936 was a report from a secret agent using the name of Andrea, Andrew in Italian, who wrote, quote, it was sighted in the morning of Monday. It was a metallic disc, polished and reflecting light, with a length of 10 or 12 meters. Two fighters from a near base took off, but were not able to reach it, even at 130 kilometers per hour. It didn't emit sound. It has arrived to the hands of Ciano. Count Ciano was Mussolini's son-in-law and Italy's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Andrea's report adds that after passing over Mestre, it was seen as a sort of metallic gray tube, and that one witness described it, quote, like a kind of aerial torpedo with very clear windows and alternating white and red lights, end quote. The document mentioned the prefecture opened an inquiry and that the Duce, Mussolini, has expressed his worries because he says that if it were a matter of real English or French aircraft, his foreign policy would have to start all over again. As you can see, the contents of Andrea's report are sensational. They describe a classic flying saucer daytime incident with aircraft scramble and multiple witnesses in 1936. 
It also discloses that Mussolini and Ciano, Italy's number one and two leaders, were informed right away. One of the most interesting facets of the fascist UFO files was the alleged creation of the top secret cabinet RS-33, led by Marconi, which included some of Italy's most prominent astronomers, scientists, and aeronautical engineers. Professor Filippo Bottazzi was an important member of the cabinet. He was a top physiologist who studied mediumistic phenomena at the turn of the 20th century and had known the astronomer Schiaparelli, discoverer of the famous canals of Mars. Alfredo Lissoni, who wrote a book about the Mussolini files with Pinotti, also uncovered real documents in the Italian archives confirming the reporting system for sightings in the 30s. He also uncovered a cryptic reference in a speech by Mussolini in 1941, whose content was never adequately understood until now. In the speech, the Duce said, quote, it's more likely that the United States will be invaded by unknown but warlike inhabitants from the planet Mars who will come down from the starry space on unimaginable flying fortresses than from the soldiers of the Axis." End quote. As things began to go sour for Italy during the war, all the files from cabinet RS-33 were supposedly shipped to Nazi Germany, where they might have influenced the Italian aeronautical engineer Beluso, who worked with the Germans on creating a flying disc. But that is another story. For your need to know, this is Antonio Moreos. in our series will cover Brazil's UFO investigations. The government of Brazil has openly acknowledged the UFO phenomenon since the 1950s and has released a number of UFO files from their investigations. From 1969 up until 1972, Brazil had an official UFO research organization called the System for the Investigation of Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. The investigations were public and the organization would often work with civilian UFO researchers. However, when the United States closed Project Blue Book, the Brazilian government soon followed. On August 9, 2010, the commander of the Brazilian Air Force, Brigadier Junichi Seto, established Regulation 551-GC3 for UFO disclosure in Brazil. It reads, As of this date, all reports of UFO sightings sent to the Brazilian Air Force bases and filed at the Brazilian Air Space Defense Command in Brasilia should be sent to the National Archive where they can be known to any person. A leading source of UFO research in Brazil is Revista UFO. A.J. Javard, a former professor of chemistry, founded the publication in March of 1988. In 2002, the magazine began a partnership with the Brazilian Center for Flying Saucer Research to produce content. Brazil's military has released some of their UFO files in response to the UFO Freedom of Information Now campaign started in April 2004 by the Brazilian UFO magazine. The files that are available can be downloaded from the website ufo.com.br. Since we started our campaign UFO's Freedom of Information Now in 2004, we gather like 70,000 subscription to our petition and we delivered to the government and the government eventually started releasing files. 
by decades, first they released the 50s, the documents for the 50s, then the documents for the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the years 2000. Altogether, we got some, um, something like 4.5 thousand pages of UFO documents previously classified, plus some three to 350 uh, uh, photos of UFOs. I believe that this amount of material that has been released is no more than 10%. The disclosure process started in May of 2005 when a group of ufologists met with the Brazilian Air Force to discuss sightings and fully examine classified documents. During that meeting, the researchers were informed on procedures for UFO detection. They were also able to visit air traffic control rooms and review three historical cases. Brazilian ufologist A.J. Javard was part of the group and at the 2011 International UFO Congress he spoke about his involvement. Most of the pages are trash. They don't have much, uh, they are not worth for investigative purposes, but some of papers are very interesting. It's like the government is giving us a test, is seeing if we are smart enough to, to evaluate what what there is in, 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 uh, in, 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 that, in that amount of garbage. If we are smart, if we can uh, take the best advantage of the knowledge in some specific documents that are in those piles of paper, and we are, I bet, we bet we are. The first case the group was able to review was from 1954. It was testimony from pilot Najib Ayyub, the head of Varig Airlines. Along with other crew members, he observed a luminous object lingering near the airliner for about two hours in the airspace above Rio Grande do Sul. The second was a well-known case from 1977, involving dozens of sightings on the island of Colares in the Amazon forest. The group was able to view over 100 photos from the military investigation codenamed Operation Saucer. The local residents reported being attacked by luminous balls of light. They described them as light vampires. After an encounter, the individuals became very ill. Victims told the doctor that they felt the orbs seemed to suck their blood, therefore the locals gave the phenomenon the nickname Chupa Chupa. Operation Saucer lasted for four months, from September to December. The full report allegedly contains over 500 photos and 3,000 witness interviews. In 1997, Revista UFO published extensive articles on the case with interviews from the Air Force commander in charge of the operation, Captain Birange Holanda, who passed away in October of 1997. According to Holanda, we detected at least nine forms of objects, probes, spaceships, and flying saucer shapes. In 2005, the History Channel featured the story on UFO files, Brazil's Roswell. A.J. Gerard also spoke about this case at the 2011 International UFO Congress. Strangely, he was told to shut down the Operation Saucer. But how come? One of the, the, actually, the ultimate goal of the Operation Saucer was to establish contact with intelligence beyond the phenomena. How come that when it happens, they shut down Operation Saucer? That just can't be. A couple months ago, I could confirm that Operation Saucer actually never stopped, was never shut down. It just changed people. People in charge of it were, were taken away and other people took its place and it continued under a much higher level of secrecy. 
The third case was from May 1986. It has been called the official night of UFOs in Brazil. As many as 20 objects, each measuring over 100 meters in diameter, jammed the Brazilian air traffic control systems over three of Brazil's largest cities, Rio de Janeiro, San Jose dos Campos, and Sao Paulo. Several jets went to intercept without any success. Brazil's Minister of Aeronautics, Brigadier General Octavio Moria Lima, spoke about the incident and said, The radar detects only solid metallic bodies and heavy clouds. There were no clouds or conventional aircraft in the region. The sky was clear. Radar doesn't have optical illusions. The Brazilian Aeronautics Commission report was not released. However, the accounts of Air Force pilots and radar controllers were published widely in the press and later studied by Brazilian researchers. A.J. Javard found these documents to be a great confirmation. We got this, the great confirmation of what happened at that particular night, the official night of UFOs in Brazil. And it is, quote, it is the conclusion of this command that the observed objects were solid and under control by some sort of intelligence because of their capacity of pursuing the formation of jets. That's a great confirmation. It was signed by a top-ranking Brazilian military in a memo sent to the Minister of Defense in Brazil. What could be more than this? It is now declassified. The Brazilian Committee of UFO Researchers continues to work with the military and has established a standing committee. In April 2013, the researchers were able to meet with the leaders of the Brazilian Ministry of Defense. Researchers are still searching for information relating to controversial incidents. The Varginha case is one of the most well-known cases in Brazilian ufology. Canadian ufologist Stanton Friedman said, Varginha has the makings of a cosmic Watergate. According to media reports, on January 20th, 1996, three women saw an unknown creature while walking to their home. They described it as being about five feet tall with a thin monkey-like body and V-shaped feet. It had a large head with three lumps on it, brown skin, and big, red, bug-like eyes with a strong, unpleasant odor. The Brazilian media was saturated with speculation. There were soon rumors of other creatures, UFO sightings, and alleged military involvement. The Brazilian government denies capturing the creature during the incident, but some researchers have their doubts. Commemorative statues of the creature can be found all around the city of Varginha. Another famous Brazilian UFO sighting took place on Trindade Island. On January 16, 1958, Admiral Saldanha was conducting geophysical research on a Navy training ship with professional photographer Elmiro Barauna on board. Around noon, a UFO came toward the island at high speed, hovered for a moment, went behind a peak, and then back towards the sea. Barauna managed to get four photos of the object. The Navy's initial investigation was kept secret, but when the files reached Brazil's president, they were released and the photos made worldwide headlines. The official witness reports have not been made public, but the Brazilian Ministry of Defense said the documents were going through the proper procedures for release and are to be released in accordance with Brazil's Access to Information Act. Now, I do believe that in the years to come, we will integrate we will exchange more and more information. We will participate in, in investigations coordinated by one or another or by all of us. And I sincerely expect that our government
fulfilled its promise given to us in 205. For your need to know, this is Tina Goodson.